This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Lisa Kovacevic and I've temporarily taken the reins from Tho- Thomas Caldwelly. Caldwell. <laughs> is that it? Have I got it right? That's close. That's close. I, I'm, I'm pretty easygoing. I know it's difficult to pronounce names, it so is. I'm very forgiving. Particularly very foreign ones like that. Um, I so deserve that and, and a lot more. Uh, but Thomas is in the studio still, just on the other side of the desk tonight. Um, and as always, Emma Westwood is joining us too. Hello, Emma. Hello. How are you? Hello. You pronounced my name so beautifully. Oh, did I? Oh, thanks. <laughs> I've been practising. I Googled it and I got the pronunciation. West, oh. Westwood. Well done. Computer. Well done. Man, I'm just going to go and get some burn lotion, I think. <laughs> um, on tonight's show, we'll be reviewing Lucky, the latest film featuring the late, great Harry Dean Stanton and from the lobster director Yorgos Lanthimos, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh, but first, The Ornithologist is the new film by Portuguese filmmaker... Oh, no, Joao Pedro Rodriguez. Beautiful. Is that right, Emma? Yes. Joao Pedro Rodriguez. Yeah, I think it was right too. You can, <laughs> yeah. you, you can ask me these yeah. things. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> uh, so uh, in The Ornithologist, Fernando, played by Paul Hamey, is a solitary bird watcher searching for black stalks from, him, from his small boat. Transfixed and distracted at the sight of them, his boat is swept away over rapids and washed ashore in the thick of a remote Portuguese wilderness. Rescued by a couple of Chinese pilgrims, he plunges into an eerie and dark forest populated with all manner of macabre and haunting figures, including a deaf and dumb shepherd called Jesus or Jesus, um, as Fernando struggles to find a path out. What did we make of the ornithologist? Thomas. When you do the big inhale, it implies you're going to leap into it first. Oh, okay. All right. Or do you want me to? I don't know. I, I don't know. This is scintillating radio. I, um, <laughs> okay, the ornithologist. So I, I came to this film aware that it was going to be uh, very unconventional in the, in the way the narrative unfolded. I had what little I knew about it. I knew it was going to be heavy on the symbolism. And I gather there's an awful lot of Christian and even pagan symbolism in there all of which I I completely missed went over my head. I, I was aware of, or, you know, there there are some crucifixion imagery in there that I I, I definitely uh, recognise to a small degree. But I think this is a very uh, heavily layered film with with the symbolism. So I went in sort of knowing this was not going to be conventional at all, and yet, and I'm really worried about talking about this film because I don't know how much I'm going to be, be able to bring to the table of use. I just found this an ex- this is an excruciatingly boring, tedious experience to watch this film. And, and I think it's me. I think it's on me. I don't think I was in the right space when I watched it. But I really struggled to connect or to get anything out of this film at all. There's a lot of long stretches where very little happens. That normally doesn't worry me, but mm. it did in this film. And then you've got these kind of, yeah, these, these weird moments, which I'm sure if we did some kind of heavy deconstruction would be pregnant with meaning. I'm sure it's all in there. But it, it, I, none of it stayed with me. And I think after the first encounter with the two Chinese women, I just completely lost interest and was just begging this film to end. And mm. and I 
Speaking about this film, I'm really conscious of the fact I'm so close to becoming what I hate <laughs> in dismissing this film as being sort of an art house emperor's new clothes because people have gone nuts for this film. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of got my back up because I failed to connect with it. <laughs> so I'm really resisting that arrogance to just write it off because I didn't personally have get anything out of it. So You I loved think, it, Thomas. Yeah, Face no, it, I, you I, loved I, it. I really didn't. I found the whole experience <laughs> of watching this film utterly tedious. But again, I'm going to reiterate... I think that's on me, mm. and I've probably said enough already. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that with this film, um, I can see why it's got a limited release. I was wondering why it had such a limited release, and it is very Eurocentric. I think it is playing very much to its domestic audience. Mm. Um in in compare, it actually kind of for me begs comparison to Killing of the Sacred Deer that we're watching, uh, what we're talking about this week as well. Yeah, yeah. where but I, whereas, I can see the comparison. Yeah, yeah, but whereas if you go into Killing of a Sacred Deer not knowing quite as much about it, you're probably going to get a better experience. Mm. Whereas with this film, at least from a non-religious Australian chick in Brunswick's um, point of view. Knowing more about the context helped me read this film. I think if I didn't have, I actually stopped it and went and read mm. about it. Yeah, so I kind of had that sort of experience with it. But um, I felt that um, the religious, because for example, the the Saint Anthony, it's around the the uh, life of Saint Anthony as a patron saint right. of. Um, Lisbon, actually. So yeah. being a Portuguese film, that makes sense. But St Anthony actually um, was uh, his basilica or his, his remains are entombed in Padua. And I've actually had the fortune of being there and seeing this. And he's a patron saint of lost things, but also for some reason a lot of sick people or people who are praying for sickness go there. And it was a very, very heavily populated basilica. Lots of people go there, lots of pilgrimages. So he's obviously in this day and age, considering he's a saint from the 12th, the 13th century or whatever, 1200s, um, he is the very connected with people now. So if you think about it, it's, it's, that story is going to play to a European audience, especially those a Catholic-based European audience in a different way to to you and me, Thomas, for example, all right? Yeah. So I felt that, that this film needs context in order to get something from it. Once that happens, then you can see a little bit more. Otherwise, it just feels really airy-fairy and unhinged and just stuff going on all over the place. It's a tricky question, this idea of how much do we expect the audience to bring to a film before they see it. Yeah. I mean, there are certain films where having a bit of prior knowledge and being a little bit educated on the background or, say, the filmmaker or the movement or or what the film is going to comment on is really important. But the counter-argument, of course, is a film should be able to stand on its own ground without assuming that knowledge. (laughs) See, The Killing of the Sacred Deer, I was not familiar with the mythology behind it, but watching the film, I had a sense that... This is obviously tapping into some broader. But you don't myth. need it. Do and I you? didn't need you it. Don't yeah. Need and, and it. Yeah. When you guys spoke about the Untamed a few weeks ago, which I mean, I I like the Untamed. But I wasn't blown away like you were, but I mm. really like the point. I think Alex made, which was there is so much. Sp- meaning in that film specific to contemporary Mexico, but you don't have to have it don't have to, have to access to. Yes, that yes. film. Mm. I didn't feel that I needed that knowledge, though, and for me it was a very meditative experience and I don't want to promote the use of drugs on this station, but I really <laughs> did feel like I needed something else to which I'm not 
it was a Sunday afternoon and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice? A nice stiff glass of, you yes. know, whiskey yeah, or something totally, like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking whiskey. Yeah. L- laced whiskey. Um, no, no yeah. I'm joking. But, but I, did, I did feel it was a really meditative um, spiritual experience for me. I really enjoyed it. I didn't know uh, much of the mythology behind it, but I did obviously pick up on all the biblical references of Jesus and was it who was a saint? What was the saint we were just talking about? Anthony. Saint yes, Anthony, who, Anthony, who I know yeah. nothing about. Um, mm. But uh, and the two uh, pil- Chinese pilgrim women who were sort of lost in the jungle um, and sort of sort of making him part of their ritual experience and stuff and then him stumbling upon pagan, other pagan rituals of these bird-like creatures and stuff. I found it all very interesting and I was just happy to go along with the dreamlike logic of it. I really actually really enjoyed it. I don't know. I was maybe in a space get it kind of mind frame when I watched it. I don't know. But I I also liked the way it was It was shot almost like a nature documentary for most of it. Um, and at the beginning of the film I felt like he's sort of watching these exotic birds from afar for quite a while and it's very slow. It could be an Attenborough, Attenborough type of doco, really. Um, and I, I, so much of it, I was so worried about him um, being the hunter. I didn't know really what he was. I didn't even know what an ornithologist was, to be honest, before I watched <laughs> this film. And now I know he, it's a bird watcher. Um, the first 10 minutes, you really got yeah, it. I really got it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, still wasn't, I still didn't have faith in myself. I still Googled it. But, um, yeah, he's sort of watching these birds and stuff. And I was really worried about this one bird's eggs. I was like, oh, God, he's going to steal the eggs or something. I thought he was like a poacher or something. So I really got the sense of him as a hunter. Um, and by the end of it, I liked the way that the camera had moved so far away from it that he was now hunted. So that mm. you sort of got these bird's eye view shots of him instead of him watching the birds. The birds are sort of now watching him and he's really immersed in nature. And I really enjoyed that metamorphosis. And I thought that that was nicely balanced with those pagan rituals of men in strange bird costumes. And, yeah, I, I, th- I thought it was really interesting and... I don't know. I, I I don't. I know that there was a lot of sexuality stuff going on there that I didn't. That was over my head that I didn't really understand. But I felt it's it, yeah. it's interesting because it is. Um, it was pitched to me, or, or what I'd heard about it was that it was a queer film, and yeah. it obviously has queer elements. But I don't see it as a queer film. Do yeah. you see? Do you know what I mean? It doesn't seem that doesn't seem to be the focus. I know that I believe the director Joao Pedro Rodriguez is yes, largely he's, he's a openly queer, gay. Yeah, 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 and a queer director yeah. though in theme yeah. in terms of the films that he's um, mm-hmm. he's created before. Mm-hmm. Um, but this film, I didn't think that that was the point of it. There was lots you know? of sort of bodies as fluid things and lots of abjects. And, yeah, and, and Paul Hamey's beautiful to look at. He's this wonderful central looking yeah, human oh, being. The, I mean, the camera does adore his body. I mean, yeah. he, he, him as this sort of almost figure of divinity features quite prominently yeah. in the film. Um, one thing I was curious, to, and I don't know whether this is me not being a fan of the film, so trying to layer on uh, a critical reading to justify me not loving it, but I felt like the film is not very friendly or at all supportive of women. I mean, all the female characters in this were pretty nasty. You had the lesbians at the start who torture him. Yes. And... <laughs> And who are kind of quite horrifically selfish and crazy. And then you've got the bizarre little sequence towards the end of the film, which I, which I won't spoil because yeah. it is quite it's WTF unusual. and unusual. But yeah. is, is that me looking for a critical way to justify not loving it? They were very <laughs> heightened female characters. They were caricaturish, weren't they? Do they, yeah. ma- do they make more sense when you know the mythology? 
I still not don't know the mythology, yeah. so I don't mm. know. Well, I, I I read up a little bit about it, and it still didn't. It's still abstract, even to, in terms of the story of. I normally love this kind of thing. I don't yeah. know why this film completely lost. Do you know I, what I, I lost I, it? I'm actually I'm taking responsibility. Feeling quite frustrated at the moment because I know Cerise really loved it. I would, so yes. it, and we've got Cerise lost in St Petersburg or Siberia at the moment. So it would have been lovely to hear her talk about it because I know that she had she was someone who really got something from it. But I think we're all... sort of floating around in the in the, dream, the yeah, in the dream logic of it all. But yeah, for me, like I said, I don't think it's something for me that that, that needed analysis. I just sort of enjoyed floating down the river with this with literally with this film. It wasn't I, a, it wasn't yeah. enough for me in that. Yeah. See, I felt it was too unhinged. Yeah. At, I, on that I, level. I actually envy you, Lisa, that you had that yeah, experience with yeah. this film because yeah. I, I wish I did. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll try. No, I'm not. No. But, you know, <laughs> It's funny that you found it so boring. Last week I just found um, Murder on the Orient Express excruciatingly dull. And, no, and but you I'm got with you on that one. Yeah. No, no, yeah. In high, I didn't get much out of Murder on yeah. the Orient Express either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sad, sad. Sad note to end on really, no. but it's a shame Cerise isn't here to really give I us know. the I know, give it a kick along. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's had a lot of love. I, I think if you're interested in films that push the boundaries and cinema that does something different to the norm, this is really worth seeing. I think me not loving it is an anomaly because most people I've spoken to have been blown away by it. Mm. Mm. The, the director himself plays an Anthony. I don't know whether you noticed that. So I don't know whether that's a bit of ego, but... Wow. No, I missed it. He plays the role of St. Anthony. Well, at least he didn't play Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. The Killing of a Sacred Deer is theatre and filmmaker Yorgos Lanthimos's latest offering. Many will be familiar with Lanthimos's highly acclaimed The Lobster from 2015. The Killing of a Sacred Deer sees renowned cardiovascular surgeon Dr Stephen Murphy, played by Colin Farrell, presiding over an orderly, tastefully opulent household with his wife, Nicole Kidman, and their two children. Their lives are material, materially rich but empty beneath the thin veneer. Lurking at the margins of his pristine suburban existence is Martin, played by Barry Oh, God, Kian, I think it would be, wouldn't it? Here we go. I'm I'm suffering, (laughs) Thomas. Now it's the Irish pronunciation. The curse of the Plato's Cave anchor position. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Martin is a fatherless teen who insinuates himself into the Doctor's life in gradually unsettling ways. Soon the full scope of Martin's intent becomes menacingly clear when he confronts Stephen with a long-forgotten transgression and an absurdist moral dilemma that threatens the foundation of Dr Murphy's domesticity. Uh, taking its titular theme from the myth of um, Ephigenia, I think it's, it's, it's pronounced, The Killing of a Sacred Deer is a wrathful tale of retribution and responsibility transposed from the stages of ancient Greece to the screens of the 21st century cinema. Um, what did we make of The Killing of a Sacred <laughs> Deer? That was a very long intro. Wow. No, not, not nicely summed up. It's, yeah. yeah, I've got a funny relationship with director Yorgos Lanthimos in that I'm one of the few people, I think I'm the only person I know who didn't care for Dogtooth, which was his big 2009 breakthrough <laughs> film. And yes. You are not welcome here I know. anymore. <laughs> very, and he, he, he really is the darling of world cinema right now. He like is, yeah. everybody adores him without reservation to the point that I find myself really resisting joining the cult. Mm. Um, it's, it's kind of annoying how by default everyone assumes everything he touches is a masterpiece. And, and this, yeah, like I said, I didn't love Dogtooth. I thought it was a very kind of, um, uh, sort of a, a really kind of 
weak and, and shallow attempt at doing a Hanukkah film. Now, I'm pretty sure I'm wrong about that now. In yes, hindsight, you thank you, Emma. Yeah, oh, this, this is me just admitting <laughs> my critical failings tonight. Yeah, no, I mean, Dogtooth is very much a film. I'm very much aware that I'm on my own, not liking it. I may have missed something like the ornithologist, but the lobster blew my mind, and I went to see mm. that twice at the cinema. And I, I adored the lobster. I thought the way he managed the tones of dark and light, the, the weird naturalism with the kind of abstract dialogue was absolutely enticing and hilarious and disturbing and uncomfortable. So when I got to the killing of a sacred deer, I was you know, the kind of stylized dialogue w- w- was there again, not in a way that was it felt, it didn't feel try hard or force. It really suited the tone he was going for, this slightly otherworldly feel. And I was funny, I saw it in the cinema full of people who had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And, and they were really struggling with every single element of the film. Wow. And I kind of enjoyed being, yeah, I'm okay with this, you guys are amateurs, <laughs> kind of vibe. And. But it dawned on me that it's sort of more in... It, it, it reminded me more of Dogtooth than, say, say, The Lobster. And I found myself, again, kind of resisting it, um, not really too sure what I thought about it. But it stayed with me all night. And then I think, like, four hours later that night, around about midnight... That's really unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. No, no, in, in a good way, it, it stayed with me. And then I just suddenly had this revelation. This is going to sound really obvious to a lot of people who are smarter than me, but I suddenly went, the thing's a damn comedy. <laughs> The whole thing is just meant to be played for laughs. But that's kind of like Dogtooth too. Yeah, maybe that's mm. what I miss with Dogtooth. And once I accepted that, I thought but that a horrifying was... horrifying co- comedy. Horrifying yeah. co- comedies. And that's yeah. when I began to think this guy's a genius because mm. I did laugh throughout the film, often not too sure why, and I realised it's really difficult to portray such dark and nasty and sadistic and cruel subject matter in a way that I genuinely wanted to laugh at. There is something <clears> really powerful about what he achieves in this film. So I'm, I've, having churned it around in my mind, I think this is sensational and wow. I had a ball seeing this film. I don't think yeah. I've laughed out loud in a cinema like this possibly since The Lobster. So <laughs> for somebody who's very cynical about this filmmaker, I think I'm wow. very much a fanboy now. Well, I'm going to fawn all over this film. <laughs> <laughs> I would pun. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Yeah. Bad puns. We need to buck the trend. <laughs> oh, oh my god, that's so good. Hang on, we don't, but, puns um, and film criticism do not mix. Yes. Let's move on from that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I agree with what you said there, mm. Thomas. I find that um, with Dogtooth, uh, that flash dance dance sequence was one of the funniest <laughs> moments I've seen in cinema. Yet it's simultaneously horrifying that the 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 father character was probably one of the most terrifying vin- villains I've ever seen on on film. Um, and I was had great hopes for Lanthimos and then he came out with Alps and it was just so derivative of his first film. I thought, oh, this is sad. He's going to be just a one-hit wonder here. Yeah, see, I, I skipped that because I didn't care for Dogtooth. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it, is, it isn't good. It's just floundering. It's like, some, it's like someone copying off what he was doing and then he comes back with um, the lobster and all of a sudden there's something fresh again. It, it, he has his own style, yet he can bring something fresh to it. And I felt that that's what was going on here with um, Killing of a Sacred Deer as well. And that mannered, very mannered style of 
acting, um, while it could be just considered style, overt style, it is definitely style that uh, informs the substance of the film. And I think by the end you realise how important that is in, in terms of their um, their emotionality or lack thereof or their their difficulty in, um, in actually uh, assessing or dealing with their own emotions. I think it's clever. I think, you know, he obviously borrows from his forebears of um, Greek theatre, Greek tragedy, and I, found the di- I find the dialogue in his films often reminds me, particularly the character of Martin in this film, reminds me of the Greek chorus, just sort yeah. of describing the action or forbearing what's going to happen. Um, and I, I, I really enjoy that. I find it really refreshing to see it in, in the cinema form in, in a really contemporary temporary way um, but I think that distancing but he gets criticised I think for, for being too cold or dealing too cold with his uh, characters and so it sort of leaves you as an audience member cold. You don't feel anything for them. You don't care. But I think it's quite purposeful because he's just sort of using archetypes to talk a, more about theme rather than mm. individual character, don't you mm. think? I think you're bang yeah. on with that. And yeah. if you cared for these characters, it would be a devastating, awful film to It watch. would. Too it would much. be impossible. That, Too that much. distance yes. is essential to you being able to find the comedy in the situation, isn't it? It is. And what yeah. was the filmmaker you mentioned at the start? Um, Michael Haneke. Haneke. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with his film because it was called Funny Games or something mm, that he yes. made and I think that's what audiences have had a problem with is that you're too invested with this. I don't want to watch these people go through these horrific things uh, in a domestic setting and I, and I think so, yeah, there's a cleverness to that that sort of makes mm. you be able to... The way that Greek theatre does that, you can do... You know, they use Greek myths and, and gods and tragedy for us to talk about things that were really difficult. The human the th- Themes mm. the mortals deal with, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, mm. yeah, in, mm. in a more sort of uh, palatable way and, I, and, I, and, there's, and then there's, like you said, a lot of comedy to be drawn from that that conversations start with you know at a cocktail party my daughter my daughter just had her first period and then they end with you should come over for dinner and it's just hilarious it's just <laughs> don't you think I was just, that the audience was in yeah. hysterics at the screening I went to and it was a full screening you know so I think I think audiences sort of getting the language or understanding mm. his language, I think. It's just a new way of reading. <laughs> I, 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 I just sat next to this guy who groaned. Like <laughs> oh, really? he was so distressed. <laughs> he started off doing lots of, what the fuck? Yeah. And then he just started groaning and moaning. And I almost said to him, dude, you've got to stop moaning, especially during the sex scenes. I'm going to punch uh, I, I, know it's, I know it's because you're uncomfortable, but it sounds really gross. <laughs> yeah. There it, was some interesting... Um, <laughs> Camera work too. I wanted to, to comment on too because it did sort of remind me of you know it's a very much the horror genre with that sort of it's that surveillance style, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and that sort of the it re- reminded me of um, uh, very Kubricky and yeah, I felt. really creepy. Cu- it was yeah. like The Shining, yeah, pretty in much. a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. just creeping along Especially hallways. The hallways mm. yes. Yeah, yeah. And those, those slow zoom means, which Todd Haynes does a lot in Safe, and David Cronenberg yes. does a lot of as well. It's yeah. really unnerving. It's yeah. painfully slow, slow. You sometimes yeah. don't even you're not aware of it until you you're too close and you're like oh shit what just happened there which I really I enjoyed that and there was it also sort of uh, reminded me of the exorcist at times too um, with the children getting these sort of phantasmical diseases and stuff that that, that were undiagnosable and I I, I enjoyed that I liked mm. all of all, all mm. that sort of stuff and and the symbolism I, I like that he kind of lays it out too he's it's called the killing of a sacred deer he's obviously referencing this Greek myth and I think that that was good that the use of the the shotgun at many times too like mm-hmm. the hunting gun was was quite good, I thought. But um, yeah, I really I really enjoyed it, and I loved the opening scene. And I'm I have a really weak stomach, but the opening scene is oh, literally yeah. wow. of yeah. open heart surgery. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's 
tight on this this beating heart. And it was real life open mm. heart surgery that they were filming um, with that very rich um, classical score. It just got you right into the film, but it also sort of made you acutely aware of the human body as both organic and machine. And mm. I like, and I think that that was a good way to start this film because he has this sort of. Um, uh, I don't know, like scientific approach to, to to the way he looks at human relationships and stuff, which I don't know that I agree with and stuff because it does sometimes lack humanity. But I, I I thought that that was a really interesting way to get you in. There's yeah. definitely a nihilist streak running yeah, through yeah, this, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. he does still, he has this way of presenting sort of inhuman humans and then picking out the humanity of them. I think especially in the Colin Farrell character, you really got a sense of that um, he really felt like a real human being even though he didn't present himself as such. Yeah. And then these really awkward I mean Barry Keehan I think was remarkable and he was in Dunkirk this year as well. He had quite a um, as I guess we could say lead role where it was very much an ensemble cast but he yeah. was um, a standout in that and he is a standout in this. And I was also thrilled to see Alicia Silverstone I know. in that. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that exciting? And it was an uncomfortable another uncomfortable role very uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, Colin Farrell just seems to have finally found his director. I mean, he, yeah. he apart from in Bruges, you know, he, he really hasn't landed good roles for a large chunk of his career. You know, he yeah. showed so much promise at the start when he arrived on the scene with films like Tigerland and then or Phone Booth. And, yeah. and I don't know, it just didn't didn't happen for him. And I think in Bruges was an exception. But with this and The Lobster, it just seems to be like, this is the director for you. Yeah. He hits, yeah. And he yeah, just he embodies really that mark. weird style of his deadpan acting he d- and yeah. he's funny. He and, of course, funny, yeah. Nicole Kidman's just perfect Well, she it. lives in the cold anyway, so yeah, I was exactly, like, oh, that's well exactly. cast. Yeah, no, she was good. That were, but the, the standout was definitely Did you Martin. feel a bit of, um, I mean, we, yeah, we he, mentioned... Yeah, he's a hell of an up-and-coming actor, isn't he? Yeah, he's very yeah. good. He was chilling. He did, was chilling. We mentioned um, The Shining, but did you feel a bit of the eyes wide shut with um, Nicole Kidman in there as well? In the sex scenes or... Yeah, there was just something. I think it's because maybe um, she was playing a very similar role to what she played in that film, right. and there was and there's the the, the the medical professionals. There was a similar parallel. Yes, yeah, yes. and the, the clinical style. I mean, all, yeah. all those yeah. hospitals looked like gigantic shrines. Those mm-hmm. big, vast, empty hospitals did look like Greek temples, perhaps, they, yeah, or, yeah. or some kind of idea about what you know heaven would be. And mm-hmm. also, I think the idea of the doctor playing God, I think, was really heavy in this film. Don't yeah. you think? Don't the Greeks love? punishing you for yeah. hubris. <laughs> Getting your ass kicked for hubris is so big in Greek tragedy and that's exactly really what this is all about. Yes. And I love the fact there's a fantastical element to this story, like with The Lobster, and the film just says you got to go with this. That's right. Yeah, you. but I really suspend disbelief with his films for some reason. I just go because with it. it. It's because mm. it's that stylization. I think. It's not trying to be a realistic film in any shape or form. But I don't find so it... So because it's performative, it's yeah. like watching... Yeah, it's like watching theatre. It is like mm. watching theatre, but I I don't find it overly art house either. Some somehow, there's no. a nice balance struck there. I think, yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I remember when um, I saw the lobster for the first time. The lobster, sorry, the um, dog tooth for the first time. And when the first few shots, I thought, oh god, this is going to be so tiresome because it is that really stuck art house camera. But then somehow it just all comes together and it doesn't feel that way at all. Mm. And he has that ability to bring it. But I feel that like Killing of the Sacred Deer is probably his much, his clearest, more singular narrative. You know, it's not, it's not 
full of ornamentation or anything like that. It's a very um, clear-cut film. It has a film feel of something like Alien in its through line. Well, I was going to say, I, mean. I don't think it's a tremendously deep film. I, no. I don't think there's anything terribly profound about it. It just really skillfully handles this very taboo humour. And I think there's only one scene he oversteps it is there's a moment when Nicole Kidman's character has to get a favour from uh, another mm. male character and mm. to get that favour she has to, you know, return a favour. And I just found that a little bit... She does some shopping for yeah. them again. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it, it, it just felt a bit... What's, uh, I'm trying to find a better word than try hard. It, it was just a bit, It was just kind of... That was... You just... Yeah. You know I what I mean? A bit, it, bit like, yeah, some, come sometimes on. It's not that I was shocked by it. I just no, thought, no, really? It, it was know. a bit juvenile, I think. Yeah, it was a bit like a yeah. young teenage boy's <laughs> approach to It was really about, though, dismantling the medical profession yeah. well, true. in every way yeah. in, in, with that character as well. It was about saying, really? Do they really know what they're so. on about? Yep, 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 all right. Mm. You know? And oh. are they really that... Like, do we we treat them like priests? Are they really like, you know, that godly? Yeah, yeah. That's the elevator position that they it's, take it's now, that isn't hubris. it? Yeah, that <laughs> hubris, yeah. Pull them back. I've them done down. classical studies. <laughs> They're great stories, though. I mean, the Greek stories are fantastic. So, uh, the know. Killing of a Sacred Deer is on limited release, courtesy of Mammon Entertainment. Three, triple, ah. Oh. A few months ago, American actor and musician Harry Dean Stanton died at age 91 after a lifetime of cigarettes, high living and supporting roles. He managed to turn into leads while no one was looking. (laughs) (laughs) He played played a mere two actual leads on film, first in director Wim Wenders' Paris, Texas, and now in John Carroll Lynch's loving ode, Lucky. In Lucky, Stanton plays the title character, a 90-year-old atheist who has outlived and outsmoked his contemporaries, and as he comes to terms with his own mortality, searches for ever-elusive enlightenment. A homie script by Logan Sparks and Drago Simonja, Lucky feels like the work of Stanton's friends, which it is, directed by actor-turned-director John Carroll Lynch, who most probably would recognise as Norm from the Coen Brothers classic Fargo. <laughs> hey, Margie. Um, and his stamp designs. And his stamp designs. <laughs> no one wants a three cents. Is that what he says? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lucky boasts an ageing supporting cast of industry veterans, including, among others, Tom Skerritt, Ron Livingston and Mr Twin Peaks himself, David Lynch, who directed Stanton on many occasions. Folks, how do we feel about Stanton's passing gift? Parting gift, I should say. I Mm. struggle to think of a more perfect final film for an actor. I mean, this is the Harry Dean Stanton film. And I've seen this a couple of times now. And the first time I saw it when I played uh, Miff, in fact, all these films played at Miff, that's just a coincidence. It's got nothing to do with me working there. (laughs) Put the disclaimer there right now. I just suddenly realised. No, it is a coincidence Um, because we chose the films ourselves, not just Thomas. (laughs) Yes. Um... (laughs) And I, I really enjoyed it. It was like a refreshing experience. I, I, I felt some of it was a little bit quirky and, and contrived, that yeah. kind of Jim Jamoosh 101 mode. Um, but re-watching it again on the weekend, any concerns I had like that completely evaporated. And I just absolutely fell in love with this film. It really stood up for me, mostly on its second viewing, because I guess I knew what I was in for. Yeah. And it's just a really beautiful film. And it's 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 impossible to divorce this film 
from Harry Dean Stanton. I mean, he's so prominent in the film. The film is the DNA of Paris, Texas. There's the, the DNA of the straight story. Yep. There's a scene in this where he talks to um, yeah, the Tom Skerritt character, which really evokes the scene from the straight story. Uh, I mean, he's never worked with Jamoosh, but it feels very much like a, 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 a Jamoosh film. Um, so it, it pretty much ticked every kind of box I have when I look for an American film. And mm. it's, just, mm. it's just so incredibly lovely and sweet. It is. Mm. It's very loving, Ode. And certainly the details and aura of his life, as you say, are, are in the film. There's a picture of him in the army and in, as a World War II vet, I think. Mm. And like you say, he has this conversation with that. He was, he was in the Battle of Okinawa. Um, Harry Dean Stanton. So, yeah, he yeah. actually did serve in World War Two. Yeah. So, yeah, and he sings in the film, as we just heard. Plays and harmonica. Yeah. And these yeah, are all things he loves. We've seen that in the doco that we talked about a few years ago. You know, he does love Mexican mariachi music mm. and, um, you know, he, he did smoke up until the very end. <laughs> I love that scene in the doctor's office where the doctor is just like, you should be dead, but you're not, so I'm not going to tell but you to do anything gr- different. That is great rapport in that. His yeah. rapport with Ed Begley Jr. was just so superb and... And, yeah, just talking through that that idea of, you know, d- dying of old age basically and saying, well, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Just when you go, you're just going to go yeah. because, you know, I'm, I'm too scared to ask you to stop smoking because that'll make you die, you know. <laughs> That's right, yeah. It, it's a film about being at peace with the fact that it's all going to come to an end. It is, and, and yeah. I... I I, th- I felt like I needed that. I, I just felt where, where things are in the world right now and where mm. I am personally, I really needed a film to say dying is okay. It's it's just it's part of what we you all know, do here. You know, yeah. though, I, what I felt that this film really begged the question, um, what about if it wasn't Har- Harry Dean Stanton, if we Harry Dean Stanton hadn't passed away, if he wasn't what he was to all of us? Um, this is, seems to be a film that we bring so much baggage yep. to. Um, does it really stand on its own two feet? I wouldn't F- full circle. Know. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't really. I'd say it wouldn't. It's just that there's. It's just the stars have aligned perfectly for this film. Mm. As you said, it's the perfect swan song. It says so much about him. No one else could have played that role. It was just right time of his life. Um, but essentially, not a hell of a lot happens, and I didn't really get into the other characters' stories, to be totally honest. Yeah, it um, does mosey along, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> you know, you, David Lynch's character yeah. and his President <clears throat> Roosevelt um, tortoise. Oh, yeah. oh, look at you. You're going yeah. all glowy. And I'm like, oh, whatever. I loved all that. Yeah. yeah. It does. No, I hear what you're saying because it does feel a little bit like fanboy or something, the film to me. It's it's populated with people like David Lynch and stuff that we oh, all, yeah. and Tom, you know. Thomas Garrett, I mean, they were, he was in Alien with um, Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. So, but I think, uh, yeah. No, I hear what you're saying, but I yeah. think it's a film written for this actor. Yeah, so we can't right. divorce, divorce it. it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, but even the fact that he 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 died at the right time. This is going to sound terrible, but how did they? <laughs> they it's always it. felt like did they go in? Did they push him down the stairs or something? I don't know. Yeah. So, you know. But then also, I have to ask you. There was um, a point in the film where he kept on. It was a recurring thing where he kept on going past a place and telling someone to see you next Tuesday. Mm. Did we ever get an answer he, he, on that? He called them a Rex Hunt. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I missed it the first time I watched it, but the second time I watched it, there was a yes. reference to that. It was it's some kind of venue that he got kicked out of once. Okay, mm, all right, right. But, all right. But I, yeah, yeah, I'm a sucker for those quirky American indie little mm. little. Uh, 
flavours or, you know, those little bits of flair that these... I mean, it is very American Indie 101. I totally (laughs) get that. And, in fact, the first time I saw it, like I said, it stopped me from really embracing it. But this second viewing, I don't know, I just fell head over heels in love with it. I think I need to watch it again because I love Harry Dean Stanton. I'm a massive David Lynch fan, but I, um, yeah, I just felt really contrived to me, all the little symbolisms of the the turtle being in the opening shot and Mm. the closing shot walking away. And I just... um, I wonder how they got that timing, I have to say. Uh, Is that digital? I actually thought about it because he walks behind a cactus. I'm like, they put food behind that cactus. (laughs) (laughs) I I was also thinking, how how do you wrangle that turtle? I'm sure off camera there was somebody with a broom going, come on, turtle. Or tortoise, hang on. It was a tortoise. We don't want to get David Lynch angry. No, no. And even even David Lynch's um, pontificating on life and using the... The tortoise as um, as metaphor for the importance of of living or or the the meaning that that we feel is missing in our lives. I just felt I don't know I, I don't know what's going on with me and David. Lynch. I've loved David Lynch since I was really little, but now since Twin Peaks: The Return, I'm really struggling to know if, like you said before, to use the term "the Empress New Clothes," if there's something going on there with him. Because I'm just like <laughs> he's either losing it or I'm seeing through the veneer finally. Because I just don't it just feel it felt really contrived. All that those bars scenes where he's having this exchange with Harry mm. Dean about life. Oh, I, I love Twin Peaks The Return. Did the, you? We'll have to have another conversation we'll about to. this. Yeah. But, um, I haven't seen I, it. I'm undecided. I'm undecided. I yeah. kind <laughs> of agree that this is contrived yeah. in so many ways yeah. and, and that's why... Yeah, at first it's, I thought it was just a delightful respite from everything else I was seeing at the yeah, time. Yeah. But the second time, yeah, it, it, it's, it, this happens to me a lot with films where... The second viewing, I'm able to accept them more because I know what I'm in for. I know yeah. I know what's coming. So because I knew it was quite contrived, and there's all those kind of sort of kind of yeah, whimsical conversations about life and death, but told in this kind of old man Americana style. Yeah, yeah. I knew that was all there. So the second time, I just mm. had made peace with it yeah. and, and just went with with the mood. There were some mm. points where I really enjoyed that kind of conversation though where Harry Dean would walk into a coffee shop and the guy behind the counter says, hey, Harry, or whatever his name was. Lucky. Yeah, you are nothing. That's how they yeah, say yeah, hello. Yeah, you are nothing. Like, yeah. You're nothing. Yeah. It's like, you're nothing. <laughs> Actually, the, the scenes with the, the, the less dialogue, the better a lot of the scenes, exactly. in fact, I thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It did come. The, there were points um, where I kind of wandered in and out of this film, but um, the for example, the mariachi scene where he gets up at the party and starts singing along with I love the that. marriage. That was really, you know, I, I go from going meh to oh. Well, it was beautiful because <laughs> it was such an atheist up until that point where there was this like glimmer of love, you know, with this mm. other older woman that it really moved him to sing. And I thought that that was beautiful because up until that point he was just like life is meaningless, yeah. old bastard sort yeah, of thing. Totally. Yeah, totally. Which is interesting. But a lovable can yeah. cantankerous old bastard. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah it was like you, Thomas. <laughs> oh, God. It was this interesting film where this old character Man. declares that there is no soul when you could argue that Harry's whole existence was was it arguing otherwise, you know. Yeah. Like his whole career has been and the, know, very and soulful. The, and that, and that <clears throat> final shot like we talked about with the tortoise but also that smile mm. and it was just like, oh. I know, it's him saying goodbye, oh. yeah. But I... I, I the weird film I was comparing it to was The Shootist, which was John Wayne's fav- final film. Mm. And that was very much made with the, the, the mythology of John Wayne informing the character who played in that film. And, and that's, a, that's a slightly bl- bleaker film. And, mm. it's, uh, and 
it's a really interesting kind of slightly self-aware film. Very young Ron Howard's in it, James Stewart's really in it. It's a great, great film, but it's sort of more of a, a final blaze of glory bittersweet ending mm. where we're, we're lucky and Harry Dean Stanton is an actor I, I feel a lot more warmly towards than John Wayne. Wayne. Although John Wayne was great early in his career. That's another, another conversation. But, um, it's a long um, conversation. Yeah, one. yeah. <laughs> where he changed his mind. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, there, there is a real warmth with this film. This, this is comfort cinema for me. Yeah. There we go. That's, I, that's what I it was. I can see that. At I the very best. That. This is my happy place and it, film. And mm. it is yeah. it also you saying that this was only his second lead role, it does make you realise yes. because he really commands this film as a 90-year-old actor. Mm. You think, why didn't he do more? But yeah. alas, no, we won't get any more. We'll never get any more. Lucky is screening at Cinema Nova courtesy of Umbrella Entertainment. And the other two films we discussed tonight were The Ornithologist, which is also screening, screening at Cinema Nova courtesy of Shamil Films, and The Killing of a Sacred Deer is on limited release courtesy of Mad Men Entertainment. I think, is that it from us? I think we have to wrap up. How have I gone, Thomas? You've done brilliantly. <laughs> I, I'm, Yay, out, I, I'm, out of a, I'm out of a job and I feel good. You can head to the Triple R website and visit the Plato's Cave page for show details to listen back or to get in touch. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.